This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. This is Amanda, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. Tonight, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Catherine Jean. Hi, ladies. Hello. Hey, Amanda. Tonight, we are going to discuss uh, ways to talk to our loved ones about our recovery process and why it needs to be the number one priority in our lives, even above them. Because as they say, anything you put before your sobriety, you stand to lose. So many of us spend years agonizing over the question, am I an alcoholic or am I not, before we finally admit to ourselves that, yes, I am an alcoholic. And saying those words out loud for the first time takes a whole lot of courage, and that's just the beginning. Getting and staying sober takes a lot of work and involves changing just about everything about ourselves. Many of us join support groups where people suggest we go to a meeting every day, get a sponsor, believe in a power greater than ourselves, go over our resentments, practice acceptance, patience, and tolerance, practice self-care. It's a whole new world for us, and if we want to stay sober, it's important that we learn to embrace these changes. I know when I first came in, all those things people told me were just foreign concepts to me. If we, when we do embrace those changes, we thrive and we do recover. But what about our loved ones and our friends? How do we explain our recovery process to them? Many of us have hidden our disease so well that our loved ones had no idea we were drinking too much. Some will just tell us to stop. Some will suggest we only drink on the weekends or on special occasions. Even the ones who pleaded with us to stop drinking may find it difficult to understand our recovery process. 
So tonight we're going to talk about that, and we have, we're joined by two of our friends in recovery, Danielle and Holly, and their loved ones, Danielle's husband, Matt, and Holly's son, Nick. So hello, everybody. Hi. Welcome to the bubble. Hello, hey, Amanda. How's it going? Good, good. Thank you all so much for being on the show tonight. This is a great topic, and we've had many requests for, to talk about this. Let's get right to it, and we're going to start by hearing from Danielle and her husband, Matt, and I just want to note that Matt is a firefighter, and he is actually on duty tonight, so there is a chance that he may get called out for an emergency, so he may disappear, but we're going we're gonna to try to get him in before something like that happens. Why don't we get right to that? Danielle, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to get sober and how your journey began? Sure. So hello, everybody. I am Danielle, as Amanda said, and I am a person in long-term sobriety, which means for me, I'm actually working on eight months of sobriety at this point, meaning I haven't had to have a drink or a drug in that amount of time. And for me, I really was one of those people that was like so many, very high-functioning, made a lot of money. I was a sales director and just kept justifying in my head if all of the outside stuff looked okay, then I didn't need help. And then I just became to the point where I was like spiritually and emotionally bankrupt, as a lot of people say. And it was at that point that I felt like I I had to try another way because there was no way that I could keep living the way that I felt inside. So basically, at that point, it, which was in May of this year, I went to my husband, and he, I had told him like two years, or two years ago I had tried to do this, but at this point, I, I actually did go to a 30-day program, and I'm lucky that he can obviously speak for this, but that his dad has 30 years in a 12-step program for alcohol, so it was so much easier in regards to him understanding it, even in the beginning when he didn't really Really, when he questioned, well, are you sure you're an alcoholic? Like years ago, before it got really bad, we went and talked to his dad, and his dad explained that only I would know. So this time around, I think it was somewhat of a shock for Matt because I went away on a weekend, and it was just insane. And I came back, and I said he had two 24-hour shifts at the fire station, and I called and just said, I'm going in for treatment. So it was like a huge, like, what's going on situation. But he was absolutely supportive through the whole thing, and it's just, it's, it has remained like a number one priority in my recovery. And I think, again, I'll let Matt speak for this, but I think that the person that he has back now is probably like worth keeping my recovery as a priority. Danielle, this is Catherine. Um, Thank you so much for that. I I just, what you said about this feeling of being emotionally bankrupt really resonated with me and, and what I was thinking about while you were talking was my husband and thinking this is more of a question for Matt of like one thing that I feel guilty about is that all of the scary things that I guess he witnessed but I don't know if that inner landscape was apparent to him if he understood the depths of my despair when I finally decided to get sober and he didn't question it. He had two years prior when I said, I think I have a problem. And he said, no, you just have to cut back. But I had progressed so much then, but, but two more years had gone by and he wasn't questioning it anymore. But I think it was, it seems in my mind when I look back, I'm going on, I have a little over 18 months. 
um, going on two years, that he's, I think he's just been baffled by a lot of it. But I don't know how much of that inner landscape comes out to the people around us. Yeah, I will just say that it, our situation was exactly the same, the questioning in the beginning, and then Matt was, it just got bad quick for him at home, like me missing dinners mm. and things like that, but I'm thinking it might be definitely, Matt, help, more helpful if Matt kind of shares, like, I don't, I don't, there's certain things we still haven't, like, totally talked about, like, in regards to how different I was and things like that. So if you want to jump in, Matt. Oh, okay. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me on the Hi, show tonight. Matt. First, let me start by saying how proud of my wife I am. She works very hard. That's so uh, I would have to say, for us, like all that stuff we talked about earlier was exactly what we did. For me, it was when we got married, we were not younger, and we didn't have children, so going out was part of our social life, and I'd have the ability to maybe just say, okay, time to go. Danny always wanted to stay for one or two more, and that's when I noticed it probably at first, and then it just continuously you know, got a little worse and worse, and right towards the end, I know she had tried it a couple of times just to say, you know what, and I was the same. I told her, I don't think it's a problem. Let's just cut back. And then you would dramatic. Sometimes you notice she couldn't. Maybe it was just a bad month at work or something. So I was probably in denial a lot of the time. And like Danny said, I think I was finishing up a 48-hour tour at the firehouse, and she just called me and said, I need help. And I know from uh, family that when somebody asks for help, that you got to go. you got to act on it right there and then. So for me, it was, whoa, this is happening. And there were a lot of questions that weren't answered. But Thank we just needed to... That. Oh, yeah, I was pretty fortunate that um, I grew up in a family that had people in long-term recovery. So mm -hmm. I had a lot of help. And I know a lot of people outside of my family that are in long-term recovery. So it, they were there to help me with here's what to expect, maybe, it's really early, every person is different, but they were really good about it, and so that, that helped me a lot, I think. This is, you know, this is Catherine, oh, can I actually just jump in and ask you some specific sure. questions on that, because I'm thinking that a lot of people listening to the show might not be as fortunate in terms of having somebody in their immediate family or their circle of friends to call, so what were some of the examples of things that they told you that were helpful? I think, like, for me, it was more like the long-term things that were helpful. Some big things were, you know, I wanted to find out what all the triggers were going to be. What are the things I have to avoid? And I think a lot of people said, you can do what you can to make life as normal as possible. That's important. And you may never be able to eliminate all the triggers. So my thing was, I was more worried about how am I going to make every day perfect so that it'll be easier for her. And a lot of people said, you just can't. You can only right. be the person you are and help her mm -hmm. out every day. And we made some, obviously, there were a lot of adjustments for us. I think Danielle was awesome about everything when she got home. And the biggest thing that she'd asked, and I'm still true to it, is that there was never any alcohol in the house. And there isn't. So that was a big thing where I was always a social drinker. I would have a beer or two after dinner or something like that, or football game, maybe more. But now if she doesn't want me to... I won't. She doesn't ask me not to drink, but I take into consideration that if her comfort level yeah, uh, just is always the house. on my mind. 
And and just on that point, we've got, I asked Matt, like, in the house, because I feel like it's my safe zone, but, like, we are at the point now, I'll say, he was awesome in the very beginning when I needed him to be, like, my one person that didn't drink with me or something, like, and, but in the beginning, like, if we went to my sister's or, or, or after a few months, I would just ask, like, I had a weird request. It was just like, listen, just like, you can drink beer just if you don't mind just pouring it in a cup or something. So I didn't have to see the bottles and stuff. Like, and that was like really easy for him. And it was just made a huge difference for me too. And luckily I'm at the point now, like, I don't ever want alcohol in our house. I just think it's not smart, but I don't, I certainly am like get at the point where I'm comfortable with him drinking out of the house. When he's come home from being after something at the bar for a little while, and I really will be like, I can't kiss you, because even just the smell of it for me, it it starts to make me, like, frustrated, or at one point it did, like, that I'm missing out or something. And he totally is really good about that. This is so, you guys, I I can tell that you're in this together. You're definitely working together on this. Matt, I'm curious, what was the hardest thing for you of of the adaptations that you made at home and that you and Danielle made together? What was the hardest one for you? I'd have to, I would have to say maybe the hardest thing for maybe the both of us was that we were such, we were social people. Uh, Yeah, Hmm. I know Danielle said at home for us was like, it's our safe haven, but we were always out and about, always with friends, always with people. But, and I've noticed it too, is that it always involved the drinking. So I, I would have to say that maybe for the both of us, a lot of us has been that we've not distanced ourselves from the people that we were always associated with, but you can find that a lot of the times we, we choose not to go to uh, events because we know ahead of time that there's going to be a lot of alcohol there. And so that I think that might have been maybe the hardest change for us. And there's a lot of times that I'd send Matt, like, on his, I'd be like, you can go, I'm not going to go. And everyone knew it's not a secret, and I'm sorry, I just am at the point where it's like they need to understand it. Like, I stopped, like, caring what everybody thought. And I think the hard thing, too, is that for me, uh, because I can go somewhere and not have a drink. And uh, so for me, it it was always hard for me to understand that why Danielle couldn't do that. And that was part of the early part of recognizing when it really was a problem. It was... I just don't understand why she could never go somewhere and not drink. And kind of that played into it a little bit. It's, I understand now why she can't, where before I didn't. So now it's a little bit easier for me when she tells me that she's not comfortable going to something. And I'm totally fine with it. I have no problems with that stuff. Like a Friday night for me, I enjoy just sitting at home and spending time with her versus we used to just have to go out and do something because we couldn't sit at home. We always had to be social people. We had to be out. And now I'm Yeah, and I'm going to say, I really, as Matt says it, I totally agree. But And he might feel different. I don't know. Feel free to share, Matt. But, like, I don't feel like I've missed out on that much. There have been, no. like, a few days that I'm like, oh, I wish I was, like, out with everyone. But, like, very few compared to the kind of, like, good days that this has given me. Yeah. And that was, uh, it, it's great to hear that Danielle says that because that was always part of our, we always wanted to be the last person to leave because I always felt that Danielle thought she was going to miss, if you walked out of a party, you were going to miss the greatest thing in the world happened because you left. And that was Welcome always to alcoholism. Kinda, and that's what it was. Yeah, I never realized that. And it was more like she wants to stay to continue the party, not that she's afraid she's going to miss something. And that was uh, the kind of a signal that something was going on where she would neglect other things with coming home when she should have and 
wanting to be with her family versus being out with people at the bar, and that was hard. But I'm happy, very happy right now, so that's good. Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Matt, this is Amanda. So you, I know you had family and friends to prepare you for Danielle coming out of treatment and that she, I'm sure they told you that she'd probably be attending recovery meetings and stuff like that. But how did you feel about that? Because I know for most of us, they recommend that we go every day. And I know Danielle well enough to know that she, you know, goes quite often. So how did that feel? How did you guys talk about that? about her attending um, her self-care and recovery meetings and all the things that she needed to do for herself. I would have to say, like, from the beginning, we were probably pretty... The, the, the facility that Danielle went to was very specific on giving her a plan and what she needed to do to stay sober and to live in recovery. And that was great. That was what she needed. She needed a place where she went. And we were very fortunate through close people that they told us that this is where Danielle needs to go. So that gave me the confidence in having a professional tell us that this is the best place for her. They will get her in the right direction. And then, like I said, with my family being in it, I knew because my father told me the best thing for her is that she gets to a meeting at least one every single day. She goes to something and does something in sobriety that day. It doesn't have to be a meeting. It doesn't have to be specific. She has to do something that day. And that was what I was petrified because initially we were both worried and concerned about her job and working a nine to five and then finding the time between sobriety, work, and family it was a big concern for me. But I always knew that whatever she needed to do for sobriety would be the number one. And I think that we knew that going into this together. And I think I always have been good about telling her that no matter what, sobriety is first. I'd like to think I'm second. <laughs> yes. Everything and the else dog. Of course, you came from the dog. Third and fourth, but... yeah. The dog might be second sometimes <laughs> to me, but that I always hope that she knows that I stress that to her. That if she sometimes, I think that she's, I did a lot of stuff this weekend, and I, maybe I can just, I'll go to one tonight, and then I think to myself, well, she might be tired, so I'll try and encourage her. But I've also learned, too, through this, that uh, you can never force somebody to do anything, and sometimes with Danny, when she was drinking, I learned easily that if you tell her to do something, she'll do the total opposite. So I've tried my best not to force things on her, where That's I know sometimes. Are, yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. If I know something is good for her, uh, I don't want to force it on her. I want her to pick that and do it on her own because that's something else my father told me. Don't push things on people. 
And one other thing that this, like, reminds me of is, I don't know if people have seen that, the old movie, the Bill W. movie, but there's a part in it where his wife, Bill, is in recovery, and his wife is, like, very frustrated with, like, now that becomes his life. And I'm not going to lie, there was definitely early on, you go through phases, like, everything's different now. Like, Matt even had to write something up for me, and it was, like, the wife I have now is completely different than I had before she went into recovery. And I, we did have a spot, like, a few months in where I had a bunch of people over from a 12-step meeting to watch a movie. And Matt, I wanted to just have those people. And I think for Matt, who was working a ton, it was like, okay, like, I have to share her X amount with this. And that, even though we got through everything, it's, there's so many new things. And you just have to remind yourself, just like early sobriety, like, this will pass. Like, we'll get through this. It's not always going to, this whole, like, fatal, oh, my God, this is how it's going to be forever. It's just all new adjustments. And, like, learning, because it's a hard balance when you're newer in sobriety. Like, how do I balance, like, everything in my life with this recovery thing? This is Catherine. I I think it's such a good... I'm appreciative that both of you are talking about that it's scary to make this a priority and that you're feeling your way through it to see how to achieve that balance. And I think that I, I actually got sober on my own and then got into recovery meetings over time. And now I go at least once a day, sometimes more, depending on my schedule. And I think that was slightly alarming for my husband. I think he, not that he didn't mind that I was going to meetings, but it was, wait a second, you're getting all of these new people and I don't know who they are. Totally. What are you talking about? I don't even understand what's happening. It's like this mysterious, not just the meeting, Amanda and Jean and Holly and Danielle, <laughs> you're my mysterious friends. Like, right. You're my recovery yeah. friends. Um, and I think that, uh, I guess my words of encouragement for the families and partners of people in, in recovery is that even though we say that recovery is our priority, that's because you're our most important people. And if we don't do this, we lose you. And we're not trying to crowd you out for all this recovery stuff. We're actually trying to remake room for you because our drinking took up everything, at least mine did. Yeah, that's um, a great point. So I, just, I appreciate I've, I've, you guys mentioning that. Catherine, there's, I know that a lot of times what happens, when, especially when someone takes a path like you did where you managed to get sober for whatever, whatever length of time before going to recovery meetings, and then you start going there, and the spouse is like, hey, wait a minute, why you've been able to do this for 60 days. Why do you need recovery right. meetings? Right, right. And I, so that, I, I, think, I went to my first meeting probably seven or eight weeks in, but then I didn't really start going until probably, I'm not sure, seven or eight months. And then it was over a year later that I started going every day. So I built up to once a week, and then it was two or three times a week. And I think he was like, whoa. And then I got a sponsor, and I started doing all this other work. And it's, wait, this time. And what does this mean? Yeah, all this time away from. How do you feel about the the time away from you, Matt? How Uh, does that impact you? I would have to say that it's <laughs> unfortunate. It's weird because I probably work more now than I did before. 
Um, yeah, I think one big, I just want to chime in there, like for just for the listeners. So I came back and my job was pretty much like wrongly terminated. I was a top employee, but I was terminated because I had asked for time off. So that was something we weren't planning. And so it shifted everything again with us. It shifted in, and it's just how life goes. It added a completely new stressor. Like I was the breadwinner, but then great. I can focus on recovery, but now Matt's gone all the time, but I'm able to do a ton of the work when he's not around. But at the same time, the downside is we agreed that he would take the full financial load until I get a year under my belt, which is like a huge sacrifice. And it's a sacrifice for, bo- for both of us. And, and so that's obviously shifted things a little. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Matt, but that's just like right. an important piece. Yeah. It, sometimes it's hard because I want to come home and be with her. And then because, let's see, I work today, so I'm not home. I have to work during the day tomorrow. And then I come home, so I'll get to see her for two hours, and then she's off to recovery meeting. So I know that right now, that's the most important thing in the world. We're so early into this that no matter what, if I understand that I need to sacrifice something because I have my wife, and where she was a year ago, I probably wouldn't have a wife if she had kept drinking we probably would not have been able to stay together. Some of the things she was doing was putting herself at risk. So I will do whatever I need to do to let her stay in recovery. And if that means that I'm only going to get to see her for a couple hours every day, I will take those hours for the, as much as I can. And sometimes I can't lie. Sometimes I come home and I get distracted like anything else. And maybe she gets frustrated, but I'm only human too. So sometimes my mind is a million other places where it should be on spending time with her, but only being human, I can <laughs> see that might frustrate her Fair. sometimes. So. <laughs> I was just thinking if you were to go back in time, Matt, just if you could think back to a couple of years ago when Danielle said she thought she might have a problem, and at that time you said maybe you didn't really think that she had. How did you react at that time? Or was it just because it was, or how, so that was a very different response than you obviously had this time. And you already said you saw it progress. What was your reaction back then? Can you remember how you felt when she said it prior to getting to actually going into treatment this time? Probably back then, like I just thought it was, we're so young, how could it be a problem? We're only in our early 20s. It, 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 30s. You just yeah, early. No, when we late 20s. But and it was one of those things where it was at first it was only what is you you drink too much you're hungover the next day and that I'd get frustrated with that and I'm like that's not a big deal and then she'd go a couple of days without drinking and then I started to notice it was more towards the uh, with her job it was hard because that was part of the lifestyle so for me it was like all right yeah. this is to have that job you have to sacrifice. And maybe the drinking is what she has to do to go out and appease the people that she works with. And that was hard. But so for me, when she said it was a problem at first, it wasn't so much how she said it because it, it, she would say, maybe, maybe we should just drink less. And I'd be like, okay. And then she couldn't. But it wasn't like I didn't think it was a problem. When, when she told me that she was going to get therapy when I came home from work that day, it was more of not a look of defeat, but I think she just... That's it. I'm done. And I could see it in her face that she was done. 
And I had mm-hmm. never seen her look like that or to have her act like that. If, there's a lot of people who don't know my wife. She is a very strong-willed woman, and she can conquer anything in this world. And when I came home that day, she was just deflated, and she was looking for help because, like she said, she had gone away for a weekend, and it was just a weekend of pure partying. And when she came home, she had it. I think it was on top of it, maybe some you know, physical stuff was going on with her body, telling her, you got to stop this or you're not going to get better, you're not going to live long, and whatever. And then a lot of it was mental, too, where it was, I think she just was Fighting physically it for and mentally so long. <laughs> exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. And you could see that about her. And this time when she just looked at me, I could tell that this was, we've got to do this. What's a really interesting thing that you bring up there, Matt, is this, that window, when we ask for help and we're ready to surrender, that window can close really quick if people don't act. Oh, and yeah. um, and then for anyone even... who's listening, it's so important that you recognize that and, so true. and, and helped her. That's huge. Absolutely. I just know, I talk about my family came to my house on a Monday night right after I'd gone to court that morning. If they had come on Tuesday, I don't know where I would be. Maybe I'd still be in the same place, but I don't know that. The window is that small. It, it yeah. is. You have to act on it. And then it even progresses after, because I think Danielle went to her facility for her treatment, and I think the first chance I got to talk to her, the first thing she said was, did you think I made the right decision? Maybe I'm not as sick as I thought I was. Mm. Maybe I should come home. And I had been already prepared for that, because I had heard everybody I knew who was in recovery say that they went through the same thing, that, oh, what if, maybe it's really not that big of a deal. And we knew that she needed to stick with it. So no, that was, that was you tough. You start to feel a little, yeah. That's was really hard. good that you had that advice. But I think we do start to feel a little better, and then we're like, oh, okay, it's not that bad. Exactly. That's exactly it. Once you feel a little bit better, it's not going to be that big of a deal, and you want to come home. Yeah. But it was important for her. What did you say to her she... to make her stay? At the time, I think after... I don't remember exactly what it was, but she had been feeling pretty good, and I think it was one of those points where she was questioning whether this was a mistake or not. A lot of it had to do with her job, because she was very worried about all the time that would be missed from work, and did I make the right decision? And I had to politely, maybe not in such a nice way, say, don't worry about your job. It, It will be there. This is about getting you better, and we'll worry about that stuff when you get out. And I think that a lot of it, too, through some other therapy and stuff like that, that she realized that that's where she needed to be. She had a lot of other people that were, other than me, helping her, saying, this is what you've got to do. This is what is, has to happen, Danielle, for you to, to stay with us, to be here, to live life. So I think that was pretty good. I don't think there was one thing specifically I said to her that maybe made her stay. I think it was a combined effort by everybody that was concerned about her to keep her going. And just for people, that's like a tricky period. So when I just experienced a friend that needed help for um, a relative of theirs, and when you go to a 30-day program, typically they'll frequently have you go to a detox as like a holding period. And that's just tricky because, again, it was I had five days there waiting for a bed at the 30-day. So five days later, you have to transfer to another facility. And at the end of that five days, people in there that are 10 times worse than you and it's very easy to start telling yourself you're not that bad. So it's definitely, there's a tricky transition period there between a detox and like getting into a, a 30-day place. Very true. And the other thing, too, is you can check yourself out at any time. So it's really, 
important for the, I think most facilities open, offer counseling, and it's important if you're able to participate in family counseling and get advice from the facility about where the person's at because it is it does get really tricky. As soon as someone starts feeling better, they... they they, well, not, I don't know that it, you can leave every place, but I think you can unless it's court-ordered, you, you can leave. And so it's really important that the family is supportive and behind the person staying in there and getting the treatment that they need. And I think it's so cool that you've been such a great support to Danielle, Matt. That's really amazing. I, you know, I just yep. am so <laughs> lucky that I still have her. So that was the most important thing to me. It's official. I'm bawling. You guys are the best. (laughs) Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Help others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. Catherine, it's true that I, I guess we do run into a lot of people in recovery who don't necessarily have partners who are supportive and for whatever their, you know, underlying fears are for that. And so when you find people who are sticking together to really try to figure this out as a family, it's really moving. And that helps hearing you, Matt and Danielle, it helps me and in my relationship and in my recovery. So thank you. And I can't speak for Danny. It's not all roses, but you have to work. <laughs> yeah. You really do yeah. have to, you have to make the effort to work. And I know Danny has to do double that because for her, she still has to have our life and the type of person that I am, she's got to live with it. And then she's also got to learn all over again because now it's living in recovery. So you have to work at it, no matter what. There is not a, a single day that you don't have to work. But you really, if, as long as you love each other, it makes it a little easier. But you really <laughs> got to work at it. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Jean, do you want to jump in and talk about is, how, is, how is this experience similar to your own life? I listened to Danielle and Matt with a lot of interest because there's such a great example of supporting each other. And, and when you have a healthy, supportive relationship to start with, you've got a lot in your corner when it comes to facing this problem and dealing with it. In my case, I was quite opposite from Danielle in that I was a secret drinker. And when it came to telling my loved ones that I was in recovery, 
I had to first convince them that I ever had a problem in the first place because no one knew, and including my husband. We have a great relationship, but I was just really quietly flipping into my addiction, drinking alone at home, quietly filling up the wine glass in the evening. Only one. It just never, as long as it never gets empty, it's only one. <laughs> and so no one um, really knew how bad my problem was because I saw the writing on the wall before things really hit the fan. I was like you, Danielle. I was, I am a successful business person. I kicked that all day long out there in the world. And I would come home and just have my wine to, I always had my brick on my head. It would slow me down at the end of the day. And over time, that took more and more. So I just got more and more secretive about it and and started to really isolate and hide. And that's, that was the hiding and isolating that was really told me I had a problem. <clears throat> so true to my nature, I drank in secret. I also quit drinking in secret. And I just quietly white-knuckled through my first few weeks by myself without telling anyone. This is a very dangerous way to do things. It's definitely, I did not know about um, the dangers of doing that physically and emotionally and everything. But anyway, that was, was what happened for me. And 10 days into my recovery, I sat my husband down and said, listen, I've got to tell you what's going on here because... I'm going through hell, and you know what? I can't go through it alone. You need to know what's going on here. And he was wonderful. He just he listened. He was very quiet, and he was very supportive. And probably the the best thing was that he believed me when I said I have a problem, and it's bad, and it's serious, and I need to to change this. So, like I said, I was ten days in. I was through the worst first part of my detox. And it so happened that I had been blogging since day one, like typical messed up brain that I have. I I won't tell anyone that I do this, but I'll blog for the entire world. (laughs) So so the rest of the world can know what I'm going through, not the people closest to me. I was able to hand him his iPad and say, read this. This is what I've been going through. This is my story of where I've been. And gosh, it's still emotional for me. It's been two and two years and 10 months. And it's still really, really an emotional thing to us back on. So I just, he sat there in, in the armchair at home that evening and when someone's reading an iPad, he just, I could just see his finger going flip, flip, and he didn't say a word. <laughs> and I'm like dusting around him and walking through the room, making myself available, <laughs> hoping to just read or a word of response. And, but he just quietly ingested it all. And then that night he said, that is amazing. You're doing something amazing here, and I'm with you. So that was probably, you know, the greatest gift that I, I could ever ask for is his support. And it was, we've been married for 25 years this year. So this is, this is a long-established relationship. And to think that you could live with someone for that long and be so close and know each other so well and still have moments where you feel so vulnerable and that you're revealing such a deep secret. That was a really powerful day that I'll never forget. I believe in my experience of telling other people, other family members, friends, I haven't told a lot of people. <laughs> Again, I'm on the bubble hour. The people around me don't know. <laughs> that recovery plays such a big role in my life. 
But when I have told the people around me, what I really find, and I'm curious to know if the rest of you found this too, is I find sometimes that speaking about recovery holds up a mirror. And how people react tells me a lot about how they feel about themselves and how they feel about our relationship. And so the friendships that I had were those friends were healthy people who were, weren't struggling with their own addictions or addiction-like problems and who I had a good relationship with. They would take it almost in stride and say, you know what, I, I care about you. I don't care about whether we have wine together or coffee or scrambled eggs. Like, it's our friendships that matters, not what's in our glasses while we're sitting together. But I guess it has been revealing, too, that some people close to me have had a harder time with it and have really pulled away and are almost feel threatened that I'm in recovery. I really try to be patient and gentle with them because I know that's probably more about themselves than, than me. So... That's, that's really my take on it. Tell me about your experience, too. Has anyone else felt that way? Definitely with the friends, like mm-hmm. with other people in your life, you mean, not necessarily mm-hmm. friends. And I absolutely, I absolutely, and I agree with you, it's just there. some people, it, it's got to be a problem more with them that they're not comfortable because they have to meet a different you, and that means yeah. more reflection on them. But that can be yeah. very hard. I think, I say and this I would Catherine, think... I got very lonely, and that, that was one thing that really led me to seek more real-life support in recovery meetings because I was okay sober on my own, but I was very lonely. And that I, I, I really needed support in real life. My partner, mm-hmm. I think, supportive. There was only so much he could do to, you know, provide, provide all I, of that. I was... So, um, six months into recovery before I connected with another person in recovery, and it was only by accident that a a speaker at a conference I was at happened to say casually in part of his speech that he had two years of recovery, and he just had thrown it in as part of what he was saying. And I mustered up the courage to go up to him afterwards and say, I'm in recovery. (laughs) I have six months. And and the power, he came flying at me with these open arms and just gave me this hug and was like, oh, I'm so excited for you. And he didn't know that I'd never talked to anybody about it. And I, I understood, man, what I had been missing out on because nobody gets it like another person who's walked in those boots. So mm-hmm. there really is an incredible healing power in connecting with other people that is incredibly special. Do not deny yourself that experience in recovery because it, it's really wonderful. I, I also, I wanted to say one more thing about my husband and that thought. There, I think it is still hard for him at times. In March, it'll be three years for me and we're getting used to a lot of things about me being in recovery and taking it in stride, but I know that this isn't what he signed up for. Like I was, we met in high school we dated through university. We're fun party people. We entertain a lot. We just, that is, our social life has always been part of it. And I've always been a strong person and I've always been a get it done girl. And I think it was really quite shocking for him to see me in a state of weakness and, and to see me go through that and to get used to how you relate to this person who you didn't know had this side to them. Now that it's hit a little bit more of a balance and stuff, 
I think what we're realizing is that we've been married a long time and things happen. Like people lose their hair, people get bunions, people... My dad has Parkinson's. My mom didn't marry a guy with Parkinson's, but that's what happens in life. And in, in marriage, I think if, if things are good, and if you can, you you take that with you and you build from there. And so for us, this is part of our story. And we're just really glad that, that we were so fortunate that, that I found recovery before things really did get bad. So <laughs> I have to, I have three sons and my there they were all teenagers when I when I quit drinking and I had just quiet discussions with them because they didn't see anything. They it's important for me that I am open with them about being in recovery and that what they really witness is what it's like to live how I am now. I tried to be frank with them, but I also spared them a lot of the ugly details beforehand. They're, my relationship with them is amazing. And so I'm excited to introduce to our show here, Holly and her son, Nick, are with us tonight. Hi, Holly and Nick. Hi, Jean. Hello. So I'm curious to hear your story, the two of you, because especially to me as a mom of sons, I, I really cherish that relationship that we have and I'm excited to hear about your story. So Holly, tell us a little bit about why you decided to get sober and how your journey began. Hi, I'm thrilled to be back on the bubble hour again. I always love talking to my people. I was a a lot of my story is similar to a lot of you, type A personality, very hardworking, always had all the plates in the air. And I always drank all the way through high school and college and beyond. And I was, I could handle anything. That wasn't going to be a problem for me. And my, what happened to me in my drinking story was that my drinking took a very dark turn. It had always been something that I did for fun. And I had a lot of fun with drinking for a lot of years. And I had several really life-changing events. My three boys all grew up and headed off to college. My 26-year marriage came to an end. My oldest son got extremely ill and had open-heart surgery. All of these things just started to pile up one on the other, and I turned to drinking, and drinking turned on me. And... I started doing, I never really engaged in highly risky behavior. I wasn't a morning drinker. I would, I didn't miss work. I did everything I was supposed to do. I made dinner. I cleaned up the dishes. I was an at-home drinker. And for the most part, if I went out and had a drink out, I could control my drinking because I knew the bottle of scotch was sitting on the counter when I got home. And I could drink the way I wanted to once I got home and wasn't going to be out driving anymore. And my drinking, I, I was definitely drinking to numb the feelings that I didn't want to feel, the feelings of loneliness, the feelings of failure in, in my marriage, the feelings of, of not being able to control what was going on, not being happy with what was happening, but not having any control over it, and being the ultimate control freak that many of us are. And... So I knew, deep down inside, I knew I was drinking too much. I knew that I had crossed the line. I knew that there was no definition by which I was a social drinker anymore. I was isolating and drinking. And we had a family vacation. I had rented a house down um, on the Cape. And the boys came down, 
And we were hanging out, and of course, vacation, that was time to really drink. And I was heading to the liquor store to get more booze because I needed more. And my oldest son, Luke, jumped in the car with me. And on the way to the liquor store, Luke said to me, Mom, the guys and I are really worried about you. We're worried about your drinking. And I just want to know what you want to do about it. And that was really the first time that we had said anything out loud. Now, they were grown men. They were all in high school and college, and I never hid my drinking. I didn't put it in colored cups. I poured my scotch, and the rest of the world be damned. And so they knew, and they knew that I was drinking. They knew that my drinking was, had, had crossed the line. But and I'm not to this day. I'm not sure how Luke was elected the one to talk to me. But <laughs> poor Luke, he he said that. And I was driving the car, and I remember clearly thinking, "Okay, I can go two ways with this. I can play it down, like it's no big deal, or I can validate what my son is saying to me." And that was my clear choice. And I said to Luke, "I want you." to understand that I hear what you're saying. I hear every word that you're saying to me. I don't know what I'm going to do about it. But I promise you, I hear you, and I am going to do something. I don't know what it is yet, but I am going to do something. And that was oh, in August. Catherine, did that feel true to you, or did you yes. feel like you were? Okay. No, I was not blowing him off. No, uh-huh. I, knew, I knew that if my kid was worried enough about me and his brothers were worried enough about me that, okay, the gig is up. This is something Mm -hmm. that I have to address. I couldn't pretend I couldn't ignore it any longer. And I knew in my heart of hearts. And I truly didn't know what to do because I had, so different from Danny's story, I knew no one in AA. I didn't know what AA, I knew what it was, but I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anyone in it. I just, I had zero frame of reference. And so what I did, like any good alcoholic, was for the next several months, I tried some controlled drinking. And any of you out there who are struggling with alcoholism or think you might be an alcoholic, my suggestion is try some controlled drinking. Because (laughs) if you're an alcoholic, it doesn't work. Number one, (laughs) you can't do it. Not for any extended period of time. And number two, it sucks because... A good alcoholic doesn't want to moderate their drinking. They want to drink the way they want to drink. And so I tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed. And finally, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, no, between Christmas and New Year's, I went to my first AA meeting. I looked it up online. I got in my own car. I drove myself there. I walked in the room. And that was how I went to my first, scared to death, of course, went to my first AA meeting. And several people came up to me and said, we're glad you're here. Keep coming. And you need to come back. And for the next six months, that was the only thing I did. That was the only thing I did was that I kept coming. I didn't understand what they were talking about. I didn't get any of the lingo. I had no idea. And I don't believe in God. So the whole higher power thing, I thought, okay, I don't know about this. And so I struggled a lot the first six months trying to put it together in my head and in my heart and, and tried some more good controlled drinking. And I finally came to the realization in May of 2010, 
And the only reason that I came to this moment of clarity was because I kept coming, I kept coming to AA meetings. I realized that all of the problems that I was, everything that was wrong with my life, my son getting sick, my marriage breaking up, whatever disappointment, whatever was going on in my life, it, none of that was the truth. And there's something about truth that we know it when we hear it. it. When you hear something that's truth, it hits you right between the eyes and takes your breath away. And I recognized on May 4th, 2010, that the truth was that my problem was that I was an alcoholic. And all of the rest of it were just symptoms. I was blaming my drinking on other people, places, and things. If this happened to you, you'd drink. And if this happened to you, I was justifying. I was blaming everyone but myself. I was not taking responsibility for my part in my alcoholism. And that was the night that I decided that I was done. And so May 5th, 2010 is my sobriety date. And I am a person in long-term recovery. And the way that I set it up in the very beginning, now at this point, my boys, this is May, so my boys are coming home from college. They lived away from college. Nick was in high school, and he was getting, no, he was in college. He graduated in 2011. And so the boys were coming home, college guys with their own cars. They're never here. But I told them, I told all of the guys that I was going to AA and that I was quitting drinking and what that meant. And... I say, this means that if you ever see me with one drink, no matter what I say to you, I have relapsed because I can't drink. It means that I can never have another drink. And so I asked them, all grown men, to not have any alcohol in the house. And I said, that would really help me because my house was where I drank. I wasn't a bar drinker. I came home and drank at home. So I had to make my home a safe place because that was what my pattern was. So... I had no alcohol in the house at all for the first at least six months of sobriety. And I went to meetings almost every day, and I started to get to know people. I started to open up. I started to get real. I got a sponsor, the fabulous Judy, who's still my sponsor today, and started (laughs) doing some of the recovery work and started trying to get to the bottom because then once I was able to put the alcohol aside, once I was able to let my mind clear up a little bit, I realized that the alcohol, too, is but a symptom of a deeper um, issue that I had with myself, how I dealt with resentments, how I dealt with life on life's terms, how the alcohol was a symptom as well. I was a full-blown alcoholic, but it was a symptom of deeper issues. And so I told my guys, I was very upfront and open with them, because like I said, I never hid my drinking. And for the six months that I was struggling between when I went to my first AA meeting and when I actually stopped drinking, that was the only time in my life that when I relapsed, I hit it. And so now I thought, great, now I'm an alcoholic and I'm a big fat liar. And the shame and the remorse and the guilt, it was horrible. And I just thought at the end of six months of trying to do that, I thought this just, this isn't going to work for me because I've got a lot of faults, but I'm I'm not a liar. And... So I needed to come clean. And the only way I was going to come clean was I was either going to say, okay, boys, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm going to continue to drink the way that I want to and to hell with you and your feelings and your love for me and concern for me, or I was going to stop. 
And so the boys were a big motivation for me. I'm, I live alone. I don't have the support network of a spouse or somebody living here. So I really had to do it alone, and that had to be okay. I had to find my sober network, which I have done. And, and I come home and I tell the boys stories from AA. There's nothing like going to a recovery meeting and you come home and, and you tell a story. And we're all in recovery. We're all laughing like crazy at these crazy drinking stories like this is normal behavior. And the boys absolutely love my AA recovery, my recovery group. They love my friends. They love the fact that, that they have picked me up and helped me um, get sober and stay sober and continue to be my recovery network. And they have been very supportive. They've come when I've gotten my coins for one year, two years, three years sobriety. And so they've been a big part of my story. All right, everybody, this is where we leave off for this shorter version of this conversation. But the episode does continue for another 30 minutes. And you can hear that if you join us over on Patreon, where we have the extended versions ad-free of all of our shows. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for walking this walk with us. We're glad you're here. Sober is a great way to live. And if it's something you aspire to, keep going. It's worth the effort. If you are walking this walk, please know you're not alone. We thank you for being here. Until next time, please take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide. We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you say, I did that, not proud that that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Oh, yes, head on. You don't have to shout it out on Main Street. To confession ears. Person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror, and the one who matters most can always hear. When you say I owned it, not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from. When you say I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from